How's it going, everybody? You're listening to The Raven's Grove. I'm your host, Dahi, and this is yet another themed episode of Random Factums. More specifically, this episode is part four of Random Factums Music Edition. Now, as usual, before I go any further, this episode of The Raven's Grove features the following trigger warnings. We've got Satan slash Devil mentions, we've got Prank mentions, Espionage mentions, and World War II mentions. So if any of those are in any way an issue for you, please give this episode a miss. Alright, now those are out of the way, let's get the show on the road. So our first fact is about one of the most famous rock bands in the history of the genre, ZZ Top. More accurately, this is the story of how Billy Gibbons' guitar got the name of Pearly Gates. Now, for those of you who have never heard of ZZ Top, they're considered to be one of the most influential rock groups of all time, and their style of music is best described as blues music filtered through a Texas rock lens. Now, back when ZZ Top was starting out in 1966, Billy Gibbons was a big fan of the record Blues Breakers with Alec Clapton, and known to guitar fans as the Beano album because of Clapton reading the eponymous British comic in the cover photo. Literally thousands of guitarists have been inspired to try out a Gibson Les Paul because of this album, and Gibson and Gibbons was no different. Now, as luck would have it, a friend of his called John Wilson told Gibbons that there was a rancher just outside of Houston who had a vintage Les Paul under his bed who might be willing to sell it. Now, here's where the name comes in. You see, Billy Gibbons, along with a few friends, collectively owned a 1939 Packard automobile, and an aspiring actress friend of his needed a ride from Houston to Hollywood for a screen test. Gibbons lent her the car, and against all the odds, she made it and landed the part. Gibbons himself has since remarked that the group of friends didn't expect it to make it past El Paso, and much less get her all the way to Hollywood. As such, considering that not only did the car get her there and she landed the part, the group dubbed the car Pearly Gates, as they figured there must have been some kind of divine intervention in order for the scenario to turn out the way it did. After the actress landed the part, she sent a message back to the group asking if she should send the car back or sell it and send the money. The response was unanimous. Sell it and send the money. This was the money that Billy Gibbons would use his share of, roughly $250 US in that era, to buy the car belonging to the guitar belonging to the rancher. But this guitar was no ordinary guitar. You see, in the world of electric guitars, the 1959 Les Paul standard, also known as the Sunburst, or simply as the 59 Burst, was is considered to be the holy grail of electric guitars. It's unmatched for its tone, sustain, sound, look, and feel. Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin, Kirk Hammett from Metallica, Keith Richards from the Rolling Stones, all of them have used 59 Burst Les Paul standards. Even Eric Clapton himself, despite being associated heavily with the Fender Stratocaster, actually uses one on the Beano album. These guitars are easily worth over $500,000 US or more to the collector in 2023, and many have fetched upwards of $1 million if put to auction. And yep, you guessed it, this rancher's guitar was one of these 59 bursts. In Gibbons' words, the deal went down, and the name of Pearly Gates was transferred to the guitar. Fact number two is about one of my favorite music movies, like movies about music, Crossroads. Released in 1986 and starring Ralph Macho, it's about a guitar project called Eugene, who learns that an elderly African-American man in his neighborhood is perhaps the last man alive who knows Robert Johnson's lost songs. 
Now, if you've listened to the episode of this podcast called The Devil's Music, then you'll have a pretty good idea of who Robert Johnson is. But for those of you who haven't listened to it yet, Johnson is considered by many to be the greatest blues player to ever live. He revolutionized how people play guitar, he inspired the birth of rock and roll music, and he was such a talented guitarist in such a short space of time that people said he must have made a deal with the devil for guitar fame. Now, there are tons of mysteries about Johnson, not helped along by the fact that not many people know much about him in the modern day unless they're blues fans, and the fact that he's considered to be one of the first ever members of the 27 Club, meaning he died at the age of 27. But one of the most famous mysteries about him are the missing songs. You see, Johnson made recordings of his songs over three two-day periods, the first in November of 1936, second in March of 1937, and the final recording session was in June of 37. A total of 59 songs are believed to have been recorded in these sessions, but only 42 of them have survived to the modern day. The rest of them are considered to be lost to history. In Crossroads, Eugene discovers that the elderly gentleman in his neighborhood is none other than Blind Dog Willie Brown, a legendary blues harmonica player and personal friend of Robert Johnson. Blind Dog agrees to teach Eugene the lost songs, but on the conditions that, number one, Eugene break him out of the minimum security elderly hospital where he's incarcerated for murder, and two, they travel down to Mississippi for undisclosed reasons. I won't spoil the film for you, but Blind Dog sold... The climax of the film is what we're going to be talking about here. You see, it turns out that Blind Dog sold his soul to the devil for blues for him, but the devil kind of tricked him and was behind his being thrown in prison. Eugene then makes a bet with the devil. If he can beat the devil's champion guitarist in a one-on-one guitar duel... Blind Dog's soul is freed. If he loses, then both Eugene and Blind Dog's souls belong to the devil. The devil agrees to these terms, and Eugene squares off against Jack Butler, a virtuoso guitarist whose abilities are enhanced by the devil. This duel is what I'm going to talk about here because of how it unfolds. You see, Jack Butler, the character, is played by none other than Steve Vai, who is an electric guitarist who's also considered to be one of the greatest living guitarists. Seriously, Steve Vai is an incredibly talented man, and Vi even bases performance on in this film on Niccolo Paganini, with the eyes rolling, the, the fingers, and the long hair, all coming from eyewitness statements as to how Paganini performed his pieces. If you've listened to other episodes of Random Fact Notes Music Edition, you'll know about Paganini. He's considered to be the greatest violinist who ever lived, rumored to have made deals with the devil. So that's the short version. Now, for nearly all of the film, Eugene's guitar is played, his guitar playing is actually being played by Ry Kuda, who is considered to be one of the absolute masters of blues and slide guitar, and Matthew does a surprisingly good job of miming playing the guitar. The point is, the guitarists trade musical blows, but when Butler, but then, Butler seems to have pipped Eugene with his music. And just when all seems lost, Eugene pulls out a neoclassical piece, which the fandom have dubbed Eugene's Trick Bag. Now, Eugene's Trick Bag is an incredible piece of music, and it quotes heavily from Niccolo Paganini's Caprice No. 5, which is considered to be one of the most difficult pieces of violin music Paganini ever wrote. In the film, Butler tries and fails to respond to this piece, and just as he promised, the devil tears up the contracts for their souls. Now, there are three things I'd like to talk about regarding this scene. The first thing is, like I mentioned, for most of the film, Machio's guitar parts have been played by Rakuda, but not Eugene's trickback. That piece was written and performed by Steve Vai himself, which means that Vai was literally playing against himself in that particular scene. 
Secondly, it still makes me laugh that Eugene's trick bag is essentially Paganini, meaning that the Devil's Champion guitarist was beaten by music from the Devil's violinist. Now, thirdly, as I just mentioned, Vi wrote and performed both Eugene's trick bag section of the duel and all of Jack Butler's responses in the duel. However, there was actually an, an issue with Butler's response to Eugene's trick bag. You see, in the original recording, Vi played the response with areas any guitarist worth their salt would be able to pick up and on immediately, and he's thinking that was enough, he sent that recording to the officers. Their response was to angrily demand that he re-record it as, and I'm quoting Vi directly here, it sounded exactly the same, according to the executives. End quote. Vi then had to re-record Butler's response with such glaring mistakes anyone, musical, musically trained or not, would be able to tell that Butler had badly lost. Thing is, according to Vi himself, he actually had much more difficulty playing the glaring mistakes version of it than the original perfect piece, which is kind of ironic. Fact number three is about how one man single-handedly saved one of the biggest guitar companies in the world from bankruptcy. Story time. It's the late 1980s. Gibson Guitars isn't doing well. The market for electric guitars is flooded with super strats and other guitars built for the style of playing known as shredding, which is very common in the 80s. Like in heavy metal, hair metal, it's a very, very common style of playing. And Gibson isn't really coping with this. They are looking back on their heydays of the 1950s and they're trying to capitalize on that reputation. And to be honest, they're not doing a good job of it. Now, like I said, Gibson is really on the ropes of danger going bankrupt, but just when all hope for Gibson seems lost along comes a top hat wearing, nose ring sporting guitarist simply known as Slash. For those of you who have never heard of Slash, he's a guitarist for Guns N' Roses and is considered by many to be among the greatest living guitarists of the past day five years. Guns N' Roses burst onto the public consciousness with their 1987 record Appetite for Destruction and there's Slash playing their hits using a Les Paul. Now, this single-handedly revitalized interest in Gibson and Les Paul guitars, and by the 1990s, the Super Strat had nearly entirely died out, uh, due to a combination of changing music, taste in music, and also to losing to classical mod classic models of guitars, like the Les Paul, the, the Gibson Flying V, the Gibson SG, the, uh, the Fender... Um, well, the Fender uh, uh, Stratocaster, the, the Telecaster, the Mustang, and the uh, uh, Jaguar. By the way, the Mustang and Jaguar were made famous because of Kurt Cobain. They are still actually very, very nice guitars nowadays. Now, the crazy thing is that Slash didn't actually use a genuine Les Paul on that uh, on that record. He used a um a actually a copy. Of the Les Paul, that was a copy, no less, of a 59 Les Paul. That was basically a, made for him as a gift for that album by, apparently, a West Coast luthier. And basically, the luthier that made the Les Paul replica on Appetite for Destruction was made by a guy called Chris Derrick. It's an exact copy of a 59 Les Paul. It is not a genuine Gibson. And yet, Slash pretty much... You single-handedly saved Gibson's reputation and revitalized interest in it because of that guitar. So kind of crazy, really. Now, fact number five is about a prank pulled by none other than Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. You see, apart from being one of the greatest classical composers to have ever lived, Mozart was also, well, he had a pranking and funny side. According to some reports, he would pretend to be a cat if he was getting bored of performances, but he was also a bit of a prankster. Now, 
Mozart is strongly believed to have really strongly disliked a woman called Adriana Ferrarese de Bene, a prima donna and mistress of Lorenzo da Ponte, who is a composer who collaborated with Mozart on multiple operas. Corsi Fantutti was a two-act opera created by Mozart and da Ponte. First performed in 1790, the year before Mozart's death, the lead role of Fiordiligi, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, was specifically written by da Ponte for de Bene, which Mozart found absolutely insufferable. It's said that he detested both her overconfident cocky demeanor and often displayed boorish diva behavior. In a display of, in my opinion, genius dynamic pranking, Mozart devised a brilliant way to make a fool of de Bene. Now, he was aware that she had a habit of dipping her head down low on low notes and put, uh, thrusting her head up high on the high notes, and accordingly, he supposedly wrote the music for her role with a constant and dazzling array of notes going from low to high and high to low. The result was the diva basically bobbing her head like an exaggerated chicken during the performances, which no doubt made the music legend and audiences of the performances laugh their heads off. And I gotta say, it's one heck of a good prank. Now, our final fact for today is probably about one of the most ridiculous comic book villains I've ever read about, Mr. Banjo. The character of Mr. Banjo, real name is Kurt Flipbots, was hired by the Axis powers during World War II to be a spy for them. Whenever he had something to report, he played his banjo on a popular radio station so that the Japanese forces could decode the secret notes within his music. He later became one of Captain Marvel, later renamed Shazam's, earliest foes. However, he was armed only with a banjo. He was presumed dead after a fight with Shazam ended with him falling off a boat. However, he later turned out to be alive and later joined the Monster Society of Evil. There isn't really a lot of info on him that I can find, to be honest. I mean, the reason I heard about him was he was in a robot chicken sketch. That's where I first heard about him. I honestly did not believe he was a real thing until I looked him up for this episode, and it turns out he actually does exist. But he was meant as a one-off character, and to be honest, he's easily one of the most ridiculous comic book villains I've ever read about. I mean, a guy transmitting secret messages on a banjo. Why did they think that was a good idea? It's hilarious, but at the same time, it's absolutely ridiculous. Anyway, that's all for today, folks. Thanks for listening to Ravensgrove. I've been Dahi. You've been awesome. I'll talk to you in the next episode. See ya.